Hey everybody and welcome to True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. This is Katie Weaver and I'm here with my co-host and partner in crime, Christy Brower. Hello. Hello. Hey everybody. Excited to be here. It's it's a new week with a new joint case. Yeah. I'm super excited. Me too. I'm way excited for this case. Fun. Yes. Yeah. As fun as murder can be, but you know. Well, you know. Sometimes I say stuff like that, and I'm like, I hope people don't take that the wrong way. (laughs) Yeah, but when you're a true crime person, and and this case is, you guys are going to, you'll dig it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're going to really dig it. But uh, how's it going before we get started? You're well? I I am well. I am very well, yeah. Had a nice little road trip over the weekend. You guys may have caught my my pop-ups. On my phone, tiny, narrow little videos, but they were pretty <laughs> fun. I was talking about some female serial killers. That was fun. It was nice to get out of town. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. It's always nice to come home, too. That's kind of like traveling. That's my favorite part of traveling is coming home. Right. And, and I hear like, that. You actually really like my house better. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My bed. My bed's definitely a step up. Oh, yeah. dude. Hotel beds, man. Oh, Bad. Well, I hear you because actually the case today uh, was born from my weekend uh, adventures. So mm-hmm. we went to Montana this weekend and we went through uh, West Yellowstone, mm-hmm. which is a little teeny town at the west entrance of Yellowstone Park. It's yep. the one closest to us. And when we came through town, and headed up, uh, you know, into Montana, you're kind of like, you're right on the edge of the park for a little while. And there was a big herd of bison, like just milling about the road. And I cannot believe I didn't get a picture for you guys. It was, you know, I mean, I've seen them a lot of times, but you might not have. And it was really, you know, and they were like, don't roll down your windows close enough to touch kind of close to the Mm -hmm. car, you know, and they were just chilling. (laughs) That was kind of fun. But, um, yeah, but we've got a little further up the road, and I noticed something. I saw this, the Fur Ridge Cemetery. Oh, man. Yeah, about, I don't know, five miles outside of West. And I went, hmm, well, I have to explore. So we didn't have time to stop. It was getting dark. And so I just figured we'd stop on our way home. And I did some research uh, all along the road. I have spent I spent 16 hours in the car. <laughs> and so brutal. Yes. So I had lots of time for research. Right. So I discovered this case, which I don't remember hearing about this case. My husband says he does. And so does Christy, he? maybe it'll sound more familiar to you. It did not to me. But it didn't to me either. When I when I read over it, I went, wow. Yeah. I'm surprised we didn't hear because because you know. Our news crosses over with Montana and Wyoming a lot. And oh, so yeah. we do hear things, you know, and this, that's just barely Montana anyway. Right. Yeah. That's like that West Yellowstone is just sitting directly on the border of Idaho and Montana. Yeah. So on our way home, we stopped and did a little exploring. This cemetery is literally in the Quaking Aspens. Let's see. Oh, of course. <laughs> Where are my pictures? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Yeah. That was Directly a lot of them, though. In the Quakies. Oh, pretty. 
And like literally, there's just little uh, like headstones every so often. Just out in the trees. Out in the trees. And we couldn't wow. see them very well because there's still quite a bit of snow up there, as you can yeah. probably see. And so we couldn't see a lot. I did try to close up a little bit so that you could at least see, like you could see some some flowers and like grave decorations sticking out of the, uh, oh, wow. you know, the snow, snow here and there. Yeah. But that's about it. And, you know, so I definitely have to go back up there when the snow melts. But uh, right. you couldn't really see anything more than that. And we didn't dare go very deep into the cemetery. You had to walk in. They had it blocked off. And there was a grizzly bear attack up there, like three miles from this place. And so yeah, they're we waking were going up. very deep. Though so that grizz actually, unfortunately, was uh, was shot and killed. But um, I hate yeah. it when that happens. That I is hate a it because hell of a story. Did you hear yeah, about it? I did. I did. So, and I hate it when it. I hate it when um, people encroach upon their territory. Yeah. And then when they kill somebody, then we have to kill them. I just, I don't know. Right. Well, this is, and it probably is how it would have gone down anyway. But in this case, it, there was a campground just a few miles from where I was at at this site yeah. that uh, a local, it wasn't even a tourist. And usually it's a tourist. It was a local in that campground. He was mauled by a male grizz. And the next day, the game and fish uh, brought in and some, you know, a, professionals from Yellowstone mm -hmm. all met there, a group of nine people to assess the area and see if they could figure out why this attack happened and which bear did it. Yeah. And while they're assessing it, they get charged by a grizzly bear. Oh my gosh. I did not and, know this part. Yeah. And so they took the, they tried to scare it away. They had bear spray, they had sound and noise and, you know, they did the things that in their professional, you know, experience would have scared a bear away and it yeah. didn't. He just kept coming Ooh, and they ended up wrong. having to shoot him and he dropped and died only like 20 or 20 feet from them. It wasn't very far. Like he nearly ran right through that pack of people. Wow. And after they dropped him, they discovered that they were standing in between him and a cached elk. So a cache oh. means that they have dug a shallow hole yeah. and, and put uh, food in it that they're coming back to. So both times, probably, the uh, the local that he mauled, who lived but is, is quite injured, and the, uh, the biologists and game and fish officers were standing in between him and his food. And that's Yikes. what happened. Well, yeah, because yeah, that surprises me that he wouldn't just... You know, that the bear spray and the sound and stuff wouldn't make him run off. Like, right. Nope. Apparently not. Elk. Oh, damn. Our dad and his brothers camp not, they used to camp not too far from there in antelope hunt mm -hmm. in the fall. Yeah. And the, one year they had shot some of their antelopes, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. And they got up one morning when their antelopes was gone yeah. and they found it not very far from camp and it had been cached. Yeah. So a bear stole it from their camp in the night and cashed it into the ground. So they uh, started hanging them from the trees after that. But anyway, it happens. They're mm. up there. And, oh, yeah. and you're right. This is a dangerous time because uh, we up. have, yep, they're waking up and they're hungry. So yeah. anyway, so we didn't walk very far in because, you know, grizzly bears right. don't run fast. You know, the yeah. things. <laughs> but, 
So this is the cemetery that I was exploring. So I found a murder from West Yellowstone from 1990 that has a very interesting story behind it and a story that deserves to be told. Sure. So this is the cemetery. I did want to show you the headstone. I We weren't really able to see it uh, to this time, but maybe we'll go back. But this is Bradford Claire Brisbane, or Brad. He went by Brad Brisbane. Mm -hmm. So Brad Brisbane was a business owner. He and his wife, Renee, owned a business in West Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. And he also was a school teacher. He was a high school teacher. Right. And a coach. So this mm -hmm. is Brad right here. He was a high school coach, coached the boys' basketball team. Yeah. Well, he was good friends with another guy in town named Larry Moore. And Larry Moore's wife, Shelly, was the coach of the girls' basketball team. Right. So these two couples were good friends. So right. this is Larry. So you have these two couples that are great friends. I wonder and if we're related to Larry. I know. We're more is one of our, yeah. Mm -hmm. Very well could be. Ancestral names. I wondered about that too when I saw that name. Yeah. A little yikes there. Mm -hmm. So Brad was just teaching school one day and Larry called him at school, said that he had an emergency, that he was about 90 miles away. And that he couldn't get home. He said he'd been hunting. He had his truck. He had his camper. And that he couldn't get home and he needed some help. And he actually ended up getting a substitute for the rest of the day and went to his friend's aid. Which, yeah. by all accounts, what everybody from West said at the time is that Brad was the nicest guy. That he would do right. anything for you. That he and his wife, Renee, were just wonderful people. And... Because that's a big ask. Like in the middle of your work day, you're teaching. Mm -hmm. You're just going to walk out in the middle of the day and drive 90 miles to get your friend. I mean, that's. Yeah. And that is a big ask. And and these guys, they're, they were hunting buddies, you know, and good friends. And anyway, so he did that. So he drove those 90 miles to get him. And he never came home. Yeah. Which was 100% unlike him. Like this is not in a million years something that he would do. Sure. And so, of course, there's big concern, you know, on the part of his wife and his kids. He had two uh, uh, teenage uh, children and, you know, Brad doesn't come home. So they call the police and the police go and they talk to Larry because he's, we think, the last person to see him. Mm -hmm. So Larry tells them that he was, when Brad got to him, that he was inebriated and really depressed. And said that he just was sick of this life and sick of his wife and didn't want to be a teacher anymore and didn't want to have a restaurant anymore. And asked Larry if he could borrow some money and got into a red sports car with a blonde woman with Washington plates and took off. And he's never heard from him again. What? Yeah. So he this gets in his car to drive 90 miles to help his friend so that he can then run off with a woman. Yeah. This is the story he tells. And Whatever. his wife is flabbergasted because this isn't at all like her husband. Right. And it just doesn't make sense. Well, none of it fits. Like, so you no. quickly, this is the 90s. You don't have a cell phone. So you right. call someone on the landline phone and say, I've got to drive 90 miles to help my friend. Will you come pick me up? I'm going to run away from my wife. Yeah. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. 
it just none of it made sense and so the police are they search and search and search i mean there's quite the manhunt for him because i mean do understand i mean this is very near the wilderness there bad things do happen to people in nature in this area more often than than people do bad things to people you know Mm -hmm. so uh, but brad's car was in the parking lot of that I, it was like a, I think it was like a diner uh, rest service area kind of place. Anyway, mm-hmm. his car was abandoned in that parking lot, but there were absolutely no signs of foul play. So, so wait, I have a question. Yeah. How did Larry get home? If Larry was stranded and Brad came to get Larry, yeah, now Brad's question. gone. How the hell did Larry get his truck and camper home? I'm a guess, and he drove them home. Probably miraculously, his truck started. That's what I'm wondering, because I, I none of this, this story makes no sense at all, because yeah. the beginning of this story was Larry was stranded and couldn't get home. Mm-hmm. Yep. Hmm. So from the get-go, Shelly tells people that she's worried that Brad might have, that Larry may have done something to Brad, because oh, wow. as it happens, they had separated two days before. Oh, and Shelly was a, a victim of domestic violence, mm-hmm. and apparently Larry had accused her of having an affair with Brad. That's right. There were things said about because they were mm-hmm. sort of both coaches and hung out at the school together and stuff that there mm-hmm. was some ideas that maybe they had an affair. Mm-hmm. But she totally denies. His yeah. wife totally denies. Mm-hmm. You know, they, everyone is like, that's just not even true. She indicates that Larry had gotten more and more paranoid over the last few weeks and gotten more violent and gotten more weird. Mm-hmm. And to the point that she wanted him, she wanted to be done with him. Yeah. And it sounds like maybe Brad and Renee were kind of trying to help her. And mm-hmm. so okay. at any rate, now uh, she's worried. And of course, understand the town of West Yellowstone has about eight or sorry, somewhere between 800 and a thousand people, depending on the year we're talking about, but about a thousand people. This yeah. is a tiny town. Everybody is all up in everyone else's business. Sure. So now of course, everyone's, um, you know, there's rumors floating around that Shelley was having an affair with Brad and there's rumors, you know, that he ran off with another woman. So his poor wife and kids are just really going through the ringer in every way you can think of. And so is poor Shelly, who didn't do a damn thing wrong. Right. And then we have Larry. It's just kind of playing it cool-ish. Right? So the police, I think, kind of are thinking Larry immediately. Mm -hmm. But they don't really have any evidence. And so... They ask him if they can search his truck, and he agrees. So they search his truck, and it is completely immaculate. So then they search his camper, and they discover that the camper has some bullet holes in the floor and in the uh, kind of like in the side by the door and in the liner underneath it that he's been patching with some putty. And they ask him about Mm -hmm. it, and he says, oh, yeah, I was hunting once, and I was trying to shoot a mouse. A mouse. What? Because everybody blows holes all over their camper with a handgun, you know, because they saw a mouse. Oh, my gosh. 
But they also Why would you do that? That's insane. Nobody's nobody does that for real. You're not going to destroy your camper for that. No. But one of the uh, investigators sees something on one of the curtains that looks really weird. He describes it as about the size of a quarter and it looks kind of like chicken fat. Oh. Yeah, sorry. Not good. And so you know he, what? Our fat looks like chicken fat. Human mm-hmm. fat looks like chicken fat. It's yellow. It looked like tissue of some sort. Mm-hmm. So he takes the whole curtain and they send that off to a lab. You know, and in the meantime, Larry's just, you know, basically telling tales. Well, so they're still investigating and a letter from Brad arrives at police headquarters. And it says he's alive and well and living in Washington State. And it's postmarked from Washington State. But it's just kind of weird. The police are still like, what in the world, you know? So it just doesn't Well, and out of curiosity, why would Brad send a letter to the police? Wouldn't Uh, he send that letter to his wife? He's indicating that he understands that there's a manhunt for him and he wants to let them know, you can stop looking, I'm fine. Yeah. Wow, that's Larry's getting pretty creative, isn't he? Mm-hmm. I just didn't want this life anymore, so bye-bye. Stop looking for me. <laughs> yeah. And it is postmarked from Washington. So then, of course, they do search the camper. They also find a fragment from a three fifty-seven mag pistol. Mm-hmm. And that's where the story of shooting the mouse, you know. Oh, of the bullet, like a bullet fragment. Up. Yeah. Yeah. So... They have a test done. The the tissue from the curtain goes to the Missoula State Crime Lab. And they do a test that identifies the tissue as human. And the striations meant it was muscle. Mm. They still don't know who it belongs to. But they also don't think it's enough evidence for them to move because a bit of muscle in, you know, someone's camper doesn't mean they're dead, you know. I mean, you could True. essentially shed some muscle somewhere in theory, but how the hell, right? I don't want to think about how that happens. But anyway, Just they they still leave don't a piece of muscle really... lying around. Yeah, I'm they don't really think they have sure enough. So, in the meantime, while they are at the same time that they get this back, and they're they're going to question Larry more about uh, why he has human muscle hanging off the curtain of his camper. Uh, another letter comes, this time from Spokane, from Brad. And he apologizes for creating a strain on everyone involved. And again, it's like, guys, I'm good. I just needed to get away from my life. So just quit looking for me. <laughs> yeah. So a few days later, Larry shows up at the police department and says, hey, I got a letter from Brad. And in this letter, Brad asks Larry to make sure that his wife, Renee, is taken care of. There's a little problem with the letter, however. Brad, Brad, spells his wife's name wrong. (laughs) Of course he did, uh, as I'm sure he did many times throughout long marriage. Her name is Renee, but it's R-E-N-E. So I'm guessing that Brad added an extra E to that. But mm-hmm. at any rate, mm-hmm. or yeah, perhaps. 
<laughs> yes. So that is a oh, clue. Brad. Uh, Brad can't even spell his own wife's name. What the yeah. hell? That's definitely a, that's a clue. <laughs> There's some yeah. other things in the letter, too, that are big red flags. So now they're like, all right, what the hell is happening here? So they test the letters with nihydrin mm-hmm. to see if they can get some fingerprints. Uh and they find lots of fingerprints on the letters, but none of them match Brad. They also don't match Larry. So they're still not sure what the heck is going on. Mm-hmm. But then they have a forensic document examiner examine both letters. And they do discover that both letters were written by the same typewriter. Typewriter, guys. Well, they type. <laughs> oh, I was hoping there was going to be like handwriting analysis. Here. Oh, well, hold on. Oh. It, only the signature was handwritten. Okay. So they take a greeting card that Brad had recently signed and they compare it to the signature. They're not even close. <laughs> like, not, not at all. Larry hadn't bothered to practice Brad's uh, handwriting before this, apparently. Not really. And you know how, I don't know how you guys sign your name or write, but you know, those of us, you know, we were when we were kids, we were taught to write cursive, right? right? And I have a bad habit of writing in kind of like print slash cursive, you know? Mm, me too, yeah. Well, that's how Brad wrote too. And so his signature is partly printed, partly cursive. Well, that's not at all what the signature on the letters looked like. So again, they're like, Brad did not write these. We just really <laughs> don't think that he did. Larry, you have screwed up, dude. Mm-hmm. You just had to go spell Renee's name wrong, dummy. Yeah. It's so awesome. Yeah. I wish he'd spelled Brad wrong because that would have just been smoking gun. Yeah. Well, what the uh, analyzer said was, this is not a signature. It's the drawing of a signature. <laughs> oh. so that was very interesting. <laughs> so they didn't know who wrote the letters or signed them, but they did know it wasn't Brad. But you guys... This effort was writing letters and sending them back home to try to, you know, back up that theory that he had ran away from his family. I mean, my God. What an ass. Yeah, I just, he is something. Anyway, so again, they still have no idea where Brad is. So they search the camper again. One thing they discover is that the camper has been wiped down with battery acid inside. Oh, my God what he used yeah but when they search again they discover something on the stair of the camper so if you guys are familiar with camp trailers the stairs are usually metal and they have holes in them Mm -hmm. you know to so water can drain so you don't slip and die on them and then they might have some you know some grip or something. Yeah, some grip or something like that on them. Well somebody notices that kind of on the side of one of those holes there is something, there's some matter on that. And oh, no. Sure what it More is. tissue? Mm-hmm. So they scrape that up. Thick. Dang, poor Brad. Yeah. And they send that off to the lab. And scientists decide, they say it's not blood. They thought it was blood. It's not blood. It's tissue. Human tissue. Of course. So they send it off to a guy Did named Did he Martin. shoot him with a bazooka? Like, right? 
So they send him off to a guy named, uh, to a neuropathologist in Ohio named Mark Cullen. He takes a look at it and he tells them, you're correct, it is human. I mean, you got to understand, we're talking about little tiny towns and little tiny labs. Like, they don't know what the hell they're seeing here well, at this all. Is 1990. 1990. This was a while this ago. Very early DNA studies. Very mm-hmm. early. So he says, well, guys, it's human and it is brainstem tissue. Well, shit. <laughs> so this is worse than losing some uh, muscle on a curtain. <laughs> but yeah. Now someone's lost their brainstem on the steps. And that is, you know, I hate to use this term, but the smoking gun, you know. So then they bring in, this was, by the way, an extremely expensive investigation, uh, Mm -hmm. like one of the most expensive investigations Montana has ever done, for the time especially. For all those forensics. So they bring in a ballistics expert that takes a look of where the brain tissue was, where the other tissue was, and where all of the bullet holes are. And using a two-point laser, he marks out the path of the bullets to basically be able to show you how it happened, where the victim would have been, where the shooter would have been standing. And essentially, the victim would have been laying on the ground, like knocked down, in the camper with their head towards the door and the shooter would have been standing over them. Oh, that's where the holes were in the floor. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. Not, they weren't sure if the, he was on his front or his back. That was inconclusive. But at any rate, this would have been someone standing over him that's shot many times. So that's basically what their prosecution claimed. So of course they, you know, they do finally, arrest Larry and Mm -hmm. when they do they're still waiting but they they have sent the DNA testing the sample from the brain tissue for DNA testing of course they don't have a brad to compare it to but they and now this is impressive for 1990 they take the DNA they take DNA from both of Brad's kids Mm-hmm. and from Brad's wife and from Brad's mother so that they can separate the DNA in Brad's kids to what is from mom and mm-hmm. what is from dad. And sure. then they match up what is from dad to dad's mom so that they can be conclusive that this is Brad's DNA. Yeah. And they are able to confirm that, yes, the DNA absolutely belongs to Brad. Right. Oh, Wow. Yes. So, I mean, it gets all very scientific, but that's basically what happened. So they mm-hmm. do finally rule it a homicide. Okay. And then Larry is arrested and charged with murder. Okay. So historically in Montana, there has never been a case of murder that has been successfully prosecuted without a body. This would be the mm-hmm. first time if they are successful. Mm-hmm. And so they go to trial and they bring all this science with them and all of the lies and all of the letters and all of the bullshit. They pull it all in mm-hmm. and they try Larry. And, you know, it's again, they've never done this without a body before. Right. And yet there's some other things about uh, Brad you have to or about Larry you have to know. Larry owned an excavation company. 
And so he mm-hmm. had all kinds of uh, equipment, like backhoes mm-hmm. and things like that. And so that was part of their, you know, argument is that it wouldn't be hard for him to get rid of a body. Mm-hmm. So basically, the narrative that they told the jury is that they believe that he lured Brad there, that he talked him into his camper, that he stunned him and knocked him down somehow, and then he shot him multiple times and killed him, and then drove him to another location in his camper. I mean, he was easily concealed that way, and then used a backhoe from his business to bury him somewhere. That was their theory. Sure. And again, remember how small this town is and getting a jury together. But Oh, man, I can't imagine because it's not like, I mean, to go to another town. I mean, they're, they're all tiny. Yeah. Yeah. So Larry, of course, pleads not guilty. And, you know, for the argument, the motive was jealousy that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, his ex-wife or, you know, I'm not sure if they were divorced at that point. I think they may have been, you know, had verified that, yes, he claimed that uh, Brad was sleeping with her and yada, yada. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's basically where it was at. The Mm -hmm. jury deliberated for two days and they found him guilty. So guilty to the offense of homicide. They sentenced him to 60 years in prison. So this is the first time in Montana history, two big things. The first time that they've had a successful prosecution without a body. Mm-hmm. It's also the first time in Montana that anyone's ever been convicted on the basis of DNA. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Two biggies in this Very case. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah. Now, he continues to claim that he is uh, innocent, you know, and then... In 1995, he has a cellmate named, let's see, I almost told you the lawyer's name, Greg Carpenter. So Greg Carpenter is his cellmate. Greg's a little bit younger than him. Greg is a rapist, among several other things. Mm. And some things have happened in prison. So Larry is quite the charismatic guy. And he's basically convinced the warden that he's a good guy. And the warden put him on an inmate advisory board where you get to have some extra perks. And the other staff at the prison were really mad about it because typically you have to be someone who's basically rehabilitated and just staying out the rest of your term. You have to be someone who has admitted to your crime and written letters and, you know, done the thing. Yeah. yeah. Larry's done none of those things. And he's only been there for two years. The murder happened in 1990. He was convicted and sent to prison in 1993. So this is 1995. And he's already on this inmate advisory board. The warden actually takes him and two other inmates out to dinner out of the prison Like, he's getting all of these protections and extra perks. Yeah. Well, because of that decision, as well as a few other things, the warden ends up getting fired. Mm. And they get a new warden. And Larry is very unhappy about it. I bet. Because, yeah, because he had the old warden pretty snowed. 
mm-hmm. and was more than willing to, uh, you know, say whatever he needed to, to be able to do whatever he wanted. So, of course, he and Greg Carpenter, his cellmate, they cook up a plan. They decide that if they can plant a bomb <laughs> and then be the people who fight the bomb, they'll be the heroes at the jail. They oh want to go gosh. from zeros to heroes, right? This has Larry written maybe, all over it. Right? Did anyone write any letters about the bomb? Just wondering. <laughs> right. So maybe they get a sentence commutation or at least they get some special perks. They'd, yeah. You know, the new warden would think they were all that in a big bag of chips. So <laughs> they build a bomb of sorts. It How do they have stuff to build a bomb in prison? Good question. It's full of match heads and some wires and an alarm clock and a nine volt battery. So maybe it's not really a bomb. It's just supposed to look like a bomb. Well, and that's what my that's what Scott said. He said, I don't I can't imagine that's a true bomb. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they thought it would actually do something. So they take the bomb and they put it above some ceiling tiles in a room adjacent to the warden's office. Mm. And the bomb was supposed to explode at 2 p.m. when the prison guards changed shift. But Carpenter, sounds like he was quite the genius, um, he noticed that one of the ceiling tiles was ajar Mm. and kind of panicked and climbed up on some furniture to fix it. And a janitor walking past saw him doing it. So he told authorities, so they go in there to see what the hell he's up to. And they discover a freaking bomb up there. <laughs> or what they so, think. The hero plot was not to be. No. And so, of course, they were both charged or should have been charged. Mm-hmm. Well, he was charged. Greg was charged and found guilty of five charges for manufacturing a bomb and planting it. Well, Larry says, hey, now, you know, I don't want federal charges. So what's about I tell you where the body is? <laughs> oh my God. Was so, he a used car salesman before he went to prison? Because he just really right? sounds like one. So he takes them. They actually load this fool up and take mm-hmm. him with them on a field trip. <laughs> And he takes them to a place called Hebgen Lake. Yeah. Sound familiar? It surely Hebgen does. Hebgen Lake was a place that our dad fished a lot when we were kids. Yeah. Been there many Hebgen, times. Yeah. Hebgen Lake is not far from West Yellowstone. And they go to Hebgen Lake and they he shows them where he buried the body. Sorry, I can't stop dropping my rock. <laughs> and they indeed dig up. Brad's body. Oh, my God. They said that when they got the body up out of the ground, that he got really pale and shaky. It's like maybe it, uh, you know, shook him at least a little bit. And then. Something would, hopefully. Right? So, and then he tells them that he'll also tell them where the murder weapon is. So then they take him to a different campground. And at the base of a certain tree. He tells them to start digging right there, and they find the gun. Oh, my gosh. So, finally, Brad's family at least can bury him. Right. And 
there you at least get to have that, you know, which uh, by God they deserved. It doesn't change anything, you know, he's still dead, but they at least get to bury him and they at least get kind of a, you know, a, he finally, kind, yeah, he kind of comes clean, you know. I mean, he doesn't really come clean about the homicide. He just tells them where the bodies are. I didn't but do never, it, but I know where the body is. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. He never really tells them anything else. So the cause of death was determined to be multiple gunshot wounds to the head and upper thoracic region. And so now they at least have that. But, you know, sadly, he also had a son who lost his dad that day, too. So you have about mm -hmm. three kids who have, you know, no longer have a dad. Yeah. This stupid shit. So anyway, so that was in 1995. Well, he just continually applies for uh, parole. Mm -hmm. Continually. And he's denied seven times. And every time he applies again, poor Brad's family gets drugged through the mud yet again. And it's so frustrating. Yeah. But he just keeps doing it. So in 2009, he applies. In 2015, he applies. It just keeps happening. Well, in 2020, he applies. And yet again, Brad's family is like, please do not parole this guy, you know. He's yeah. never even acted like he was sorry, like, you know. Right, like he, he could easily do this. no again. remorse. Yeah, which he really has. Never showed any remorse. But this time, they say yes. Mm. So in 2020, they actually agreed to parole him. Mm. And yeah, he's like 72 at the time, I believe, or 73. And he is, uh, so that was in the summer, that was last summer in, in 2020. And his release date had not been set at that time. And then I, I'm assuming he's released. In his plan, it looked like he was going to be living with family in Kalispell, Montana. Mm. And that was, uh, that was the next step. Wow. So obviously Brad's family was pretty devastated over that. And yeah. It is insane to me that he was initially, uh, you know, sentenced to 60 years. Then all the bombing stuff happens that he got nothing for in exchange for turning over the body, which I'm sure the Brad's family was at least happy to have that anyway. But then, you know, by 2020, dude's out, you yeah. know. Now it's, it's true that he's old. He doesn't have a whole lot of life left in him, I would imagine. Well, and he's probably but, on parole, so if he gets into trouble, he'll end up back in anyway mm -hmm. well and that was actually the point that's what the parole board said because in 2023 because mm -hmm. of the way montana's laws work mm -hmm. um he would have been eligible to be released on good behavior with no parole with no follow-up so, mm -hmm. so they said they felt like releasing him now where they could keep him on parole for several years Mm -hmm. to track him and keep an eye on him was actually better for the community at large than it yeah. was, or, you know, in general, than it was to keep him for three more years and just turn him loose to his own defenses. So for sure, for that sure. was the reasoning behind it, which does make sense. You know, 
Except for the truly, I mean, in my opinion, he just should have stayed in prison for life. This well, was a and, murder and in many, cold blood. How is he going to get out for good behavior after, you know, the whole the bomb, right? bomb, the, bomb the prison thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's hard to understand, for sure. Well, it well, seems to me that Larry's gotten away with a lot of bullshit. <laughs> well, after the bombing, he requested to be moved out of state because he said that the prison guards in Montana were abusing and harassing him. And so he actually, after the bombing, not too long after, he was moved to Oregon and served all nearly all of that sentence in an Oregon state penitentiary, wow. not in Montana. Well, dude, you tried to kill him, you dumbass. No wonder. Right. I mean, what were you expecting there, Brad? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Larry. Oh, yeah. Oh, Lord. Brad's the victim. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm very sorry, Brad. <laughs> yeah. Larry. So that's the case. I, it's just such a crazy, this poor little town of West Yellowstone was so mm. shaken up by it. Oh, I bet. Everyone knew both of them, you know, and Brad had taught and coached lots of their kids. Mm. And Larry, that, you know, they a lot of them had been, had done business with him lots of times. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a tiny little service oriented town that, it was it was a horrible shakeup. And then, of course, it went on for years and just continued to haunt their town forever. So, yeah. you know, it's just one of those cases that people will just never, ever forget that lived in that area. Well, it's good that he went. Larry went to Kalispell because that's quite a long ways away. He should probably stay the heck yeah. out of West Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. So I just shared a few more pictures here. If you guys are in the uh, video portion of uh some of the fun stuff in Yellowstone. West mm-hmm. Yellowstone's a fun little town, but it is. At any rate, that is the story. I it kills me that this fool was driving clear to Washington to drop mm-hmm. letters in the mail to try to throw people off of the path. I mean, holy shit! Yeah. And how cruel that is to poor Renee and the kids. Oh, they gosh. continually hammer. And in an interview, she said, "You know, it's hard because people are saying." Well, honey, maybe he did, you know, maybe he did really run off. And she's like, no, you don't know our family if you think that's true. Right. not the case. But to be treated like you're just the jilted wife. Right. You know, instead of a widow of a murdered man. And that's terrible. Mm -hmm. It really is. And for the kids, can you imagine the rumors that were flying around their school? And my God. Yep. Yep, it's a wild one. But uh, the warden of the prison at the time of the attempted bombing said that Larry was the smartest and most charismatic sociopath he had ever come across. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Sounds about right. Mm -hmm. Thought that was pretty interesting. Well, yeah, because. He never owned up to it. Yes, he shared the location of the bodies to save himself, but he never owned up to it. Even though Mm -hmm. it was all in his face, everyone else's, that's how it went down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. So there you have it. That is the 1990 Mm -hmm. murder of Brad Brisbane and uh, Yellowstone, Montana. Yikes. Yeah. So, guys, uh, we are True Crime Paranormal. If you like our work, we would love it. If you would like, share, follow, comment, you know, all the goods. 
This is this, our second case this week on Tuesday. We'll be back on Wednesday for uh, our MMIW case this week, as well mm-hmm. as at 7 p.m. We will have our case updates, and we do have some. And mm-hmm. then we'll be on Wednesday. On Wednesday, yeah, we have a, an awesome one for you guys, actually, that we're like super excited about. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Thursday night, we'll be back for the psychic hour. And over the weekend, watch for some pop-ups. So there's still lots and lots of good stuff from us this week. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for being here. Take care. This is True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. Bye, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can always like and subscribe there as well. We also love comments and reviews. True Crime Paranormal is hosted by Katie Weaver and Christy Brower and produced by Christy Brower. True Crime Paranormal is a short girl productions podcast.